So I'll begin by saying that in the Christian calendar, this is the season of Lent. Um, we're in the first full week of Lent. And so what was on my mind as I was thinking about this week was, first of all, the three temptations of Jesus. The, the, the Lenten system is based on the fact that Jesus went into the desert for 40 days. That's where they get the 40 days of Lent. Um, and so thinking about the three temptations of Jesus, but then, of course, there are also the three temptations of the Buddha. Um, technically, it was the three temptations that Prince Siddhartha experienced under the bow tree the night before he attained the complete enlightenment and became the Buddha. Um, so I thought I would talk about these these six temptations. Um, and I'll begin with a, a reading from the Bible. I realize that's not quite standard for a, a meditation group, but I'll begin with a reading from, this is from the, the Gospel according to Luke. The, um, the Jesus' trip into the desert and the three temptations is told in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this is Luke's version. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, where he had been baptized. So he had just been baptized by John the Baptist, and then his cousin. And then he went off to, into the desert. And he was led by the Spirit for 40 days into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing in those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy there. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it all shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give you angels, He will give angels charge to you to guard you, and on your, their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Love that last part, until an opportune time. Um, and so the three temptations, the temptation of hunger, changing bread into stone, stone into bread, the temptation of power, power over all the world, and you might call the, the spiritual, almost the spiritual show-off kind of temptation, you know, Throw yourself off the temple and let the angels catch you. You know, this kind of thing. And it's fascinating that each time when Jesus responds, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from the law of Moses. Um, so I'll also read an account of the, the, story, the Buddhist story. The Holy One directed his steps toward that blessed Bodhi tree beneath whose shade he was to accomplish his search. As he walked, the earth shook, and a brilliant light transfigured the world. 
When he sat down, the heavens resounded with joy, and all living beings were filled with good cheer. Mara alone, the lord of the five desires, the bringer of death and the enemy of truth, was grieved and rejoiced not. With his three daughters, Tanha, who is greed, Raga, who is hatred, and Arati, who is delusion, the three tempters, and with all his host of evil demons, he went to the place where the great sage sat. But Shakyamuni heeded him not. Mara uttered fear-inspiring threats and raised a whirlwind so that the skies were darkened and the oceans roared and trembled. But the Blessed One under the bow tree remained calm and feared not. The Enlightened One knew that no harm could befall him. The three daughters of Mara tempted the Bodhisattva, but he paid no attention to them. And when Mara saw that he could kindle no desire in the heart of the victorious sage, he ordered the evil spirits at his command to attack him and overawe the great Shakyamuni. But the Blessed One watched them as one would watch the harmless games of children. And the fierce hatred of the evil spirits was of no avail. The flames of hell became wholesome breezes of perfume, and the angry thunderbolts were changed into lotus blossoms. When Mara saw this, he fled away with his army from the Bodhi tree. And of course, later on that morning, the Buddha became enlightened. And so the the three Buddhist temptations, pleasure or grasping or greed, hatred or aversion, pushing away, and delusion. So I'll start with the three Christian temptations. The first one is bread. Make bread from the stones. The temptation of hunger. Biologically, the thing that is fascinating about hunger is hunger is innate. No one teaches us to be hungry. We know when we're hungry. No one has to tell us. We know we're hungry. Hunger is innate, but satiety is learned. Satiety, the sense of having just enough. Um, and it, it's really quite understandable from an evolutionary standpoint. I mean, our, our ancestors were, you know, living under conditions where they rarely had enough. They needed to know when they were hungry. And, and the, the, uh, the situation of eating more than you needed to eat was, you know, hardly ever arose. And, you know, for most of the first hundred thousand years of human existence. And we live in this very artificial period where if we wanted to, we could overeat every day. You know, it's a very, very strange system we live in. Um, and so, again, hunger is something it's very natural to us. It, it, it's an immediate feeling. We, we feel the, the urgency and immediacy of hunger. And satiety is very subtle. It's really an art. To, to stop eating when we've had just enough. And it's so easy to overshoot that. And, you know, you're enjoying the food and next thing you know, you're feeling bloated, you know. You've, you've way overshot satiety. Um, and the funny thing is that really all of our desires are like that. You know, our, desire, our hunger for attention our hunger for pleasure, our hunger for sex, our hunger for all kinds of things 
we, we're keenly aware when we don't have enough, and there's a kind of a, an urgency about it when we don't have enough. But that line of when do we have enough and when do we have too much, you know, that's always very subtle. And that, that, that's much harder to find, that kind of, that subtle balancing point, um, that, that place of contentment. That, that takes an incredible amount of skill, unlike just knowing that we're hungry, if you see what I mean. It takes no skill to be hungry, but it takes skill to know satiety, and so with all the other needs. And so it raises a very interesting question, you know, in all our categories of life, how good are we at knowing when we've had enough? How good are we at at setting those wise limits for ourselves? You know, and then, and in what ways are we indulging? You know, knowing that we're taking far more than we need. You know, these these are all these are all very good re, you know reflections for all of us. So that's hunger. The second one, Satan takes Jesus up on a mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world. You're going to power over all of this. Well, probably we're not going to have political power, you know, in our daily life. Um, but what are the kinds of power that we we try to have in ordinary interactions? What are the ways that we may subtly manipulate others? What are the ways that we try to have undue influence on others, you know? What are the ways we try to control outcomes of things where we, you know, we really kind of have no business controlling it? Um, You know, how do we relate to our own power? How do we relate to our own powerlessness? You know, Can can we rest with the sense of our own power? Can we rest and relax with a sense of our own powerlessness? You know? And just what what is the relation there? Yeah, so there's there's all kinds of at other other points, I think a couple of weeks ago I talked about control and and uh, sort of the paradox, the, the great human paradox that we all I think we're all guilty of this to some extent. We're all trying to control all kinds of things that we have no business controlling, that we actually have no control over. And then we're horribly undisciplined about controlling things that, that we should be controlling, you know. And it's a lot of human misery is because of that. So all that comes up around the, the temptation of power. The third one is fascinating. The uh, go up on the temple and throw yourself off, and the angels will catch you. You know, it doesn't actually do anything. It's 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 almost like a spiritual show off kind of temptation. Like, be the spiritual show off. And this one is funny because, how could I say, anyone who has any experience in meditation like I I believe everyone here, we all have incredible tools and incredible leverage compared to what so many people have out there. You know? 
And how do I carry those tools? You know, do I carry them in a way where I'm where I'm virtue signaling, where I'm trying to show, you know, look at me, world, look how good I am, you know, or am I carrying them in the manner of service? You know, I, ideally, of course, the Buddhist answer is that we'd be carrying them in ser- with service and skillful means and all that stuff and, you know, completely humbly. Um, You know, how does our how does our connection to spirituality live out in the world? You know, is it is it something that welcomes people or is it something where we're in some way seeking status? You know, these are always good questions to be reflecting on. Those are the three Christian temptations. Then there are the Buddhist temptations. First one, pleasure or grasping. And I think it's funny how to say this. We grow up, we're, we grow up in America, and in America there's always this background discourse of Puritanism that is saying things like pleasure is bad, you know. And then we hear, you know, the temptation of pleasure, and I think there's this temptation this tendency to read it in terms of the puritanical, well, pleasure is just bad, you know. And that's the last thing that Buddhism is saying, you know. Buddhism is is certainly saying, you know, if your present moment is one of pleasure, enjoy it, you know. And in, in some way, Buddhism is all about opening up to the subtle pleasures, just the pleasure of feeling fresh air on your face, the you know, the pleasure of the, the smell of the rain, like all these kinds of very subtle pleasures. You know, the part of Buddhism is about opening up to all of these. Um, the trouble with pleasure, of course, is that when we leave the present moment and the strategic mind wants to start planning, like, well, how am I going to get more of that? How am I going to control the world so I get maximum, you know, maximize all of that, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and also, it's an interesting question. It's not something that happens often, but there are moments when we're presented with a choice, do I walk toward pleasure or do I walk toward my authenticity? And, and Shaki Muni under the bow tree clearly was being presented that kind of choice. Either, either you can follow your authenticity or you can indulge in this pleasure, you know? And it's a, it's a fascinating question. And again, it's not often that that choice, it's not often that that choice is posed that starkly. When it is, how do we choose? You know? So the first temptation is pleasure. The second is, you could call it hatred or aversion or, or pushing away, pushing away all the things that we don't want. And how to say this? Our modern world is so funny. In every category, we are given the opportunity to construct exactly the experience we want. We can watch exactly the, te- the channel we want. We can go to the store and get the exact brand that we want or whatever. You know, like 
so much about our our world is just designed so that we can get exactly what we want and we can push away what we don't want, you know? And I think there's a way that we're all a bit soft and spoiled by this, you know? It's uh, pro- probably more than we'd like to admit even. Um, and so there's kind of a healthy... Um, almost a, a, how to say it, a healthy discipline that's developed by allowing ourselves to have some experience of stuff that makes us a little uncomfortable or stuff that isn't exactly what I want, you know? Developing that tolerance. Um, of course, where that tolerance is most important is in personal growth work. Because a lot of healing trauma, a lot of personal growth work it's not about, you know, let me just experience all light and happiness. You know, there's pain to face, you know. And it's about developing the capacity to face that. Um, I have a friend who likes to say that the most important thing, the most important question in life is simply, how big is your container? You know, how big is your capacity to hold experience? You know, and it it's precisely by leaning into our own discomfort and, and sitting with our own discomfort that we actually grow the size of our, our capacity. And the, the paradox is more the more that we sit with that, then the more joy we can hold as well, you know. The final temptation and probably the trickiest one, delusion. And what's tricky about this, I, I, this is what I like to call the problem of frames. And what I mean by that is, you know, suppose we have a dream. Now, during the time we're dreaming, that dream seems real. Then we wake up and we say, oh, that was a dream. We put a frame around it, you know. Maybe there's times that, uh, you know, I'm upset or I'm tired or I'm triggered or something like that. And I say things that, Later, I regret, and then then I can kind of put a frame around that. Okay, I wasn't thinking straight there. Now I'm thinking clearly, you know. And certainly when we go through personal growth, you know, I can say, boy, there were earlier times in life when I was screwed up and I was doing such and such or thinking such and such, you know, and I can put a frame around that. I'm not doing that anymore, you know. And so the, the paradox of the problem of frames is, that, of course, I always see the frames below me, and I never see the frames above me, you know? I don't see what's framing my experience now. I always can see the delusion that I've already worked through or seen through. I can't see the delusion that I'm completely bought into and that's driving me right now, you know? And there's something incredibly humble about humbling about that, you know? To realize that even at my most centered and my most rational, I might be still pretty wacky, you know. Um, And I think this really, uh, how to say it, there's one Buddhist sutra where they're talking about the three refuges, you know, the traditional formulation of the three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Um, and the Buddha was talking to 
one of his disciples, Sabuti or somebody, and 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 said, really, of the three, the Sangha is the most important. The Sangha is more important than the other two. Um, and I think it speaks to this, you know, because we all have blind spots. But the beautiful thing about the Sangha, the beautiful thing about any place where we're having authentic conversation is that people who care about us can point out our blind spots. People who care about us can point out, you know, Mike, you're being a little one-sided, or Mike, you're not seeing this, or not appreciating this, you know, this sort of thing. Um, And that's really how we grow in connection with others. So I'll share the quote sheet. First, I'll share it with the, the Zoomies. And I'll share it with the, the roomies. I'm a teacher, so I always have handouts. So I have the passage from the Gospel of Luke and the passage from the Buddhist Sutra, if you want to read those. It starts with a quote from Albert Einstein. A human being is part of a whole called the universe a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening the circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and all its beauty. From Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche, once we recognize that our thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly. You know, and so it's always a good question. How much do you believe what you think? Thich Nhat Hanh, who we lost just a month ago, said, Wholesome spiritual nourishment can be found by looking up at the blue sky, the spring blossoms, or the eyes of a child. We can celebrate the joys that are available in these simple pleasures. Taizen Mizumi said, We do not see that our life right here, right now, is nirvana. Maybe we think that nirvana is a place where there are no problems or no more delusions. Maybe we think nirvana is something very beautiful, something unattainable. We always think that nirvana is something very different from our own life. Salgil Rinpoche said, Spiritual truth is not something elaborate or esoteric. It is, in fact, profound common sense. When you realize the nature of mind, layers of confusion peel away. You don't actually become awakened, you simply cease slowly to be deluded. And being awakened is not some omnipotent spiritual superman, but becoming at last a true human being. There's something very grounding about that. David Nickturn says, The idea of dropping our thoughts of past and future and allowing ourselves to be awake and present is a radical idea. Our society has a tremendous engine for creating dissatisfaction, desire, and craving. Actually, it has multi-billion dollar industries for doing just that. 
Happiness is going to be this. It's going to be that. It's going to be, but it's never going to be just enjoying yourself where you are and as you are. For most of us, cultivating simplicity and contentment might take some real effort. Jane Hirschfield said, Human beings, good mammals that we are, fall rather easily into the consciousness of purposeful action. I want this. I will go get it. I need to do this. I have to do it. If I don't do it, something bad will happen. I'm hungry. I must eat. Such is the basic murmur of mammalian consciousness. Spiritual practices are in part a set of techniques to free a person from the enslavement to that mind. They allow us to look a, look around a bit, to step back and see things as they are, to apprehend them as part of a larger whole. Anne Lamott said, Your problem is how you're going to spend this one odd and precious life you have been issued. Whether you're going to spend it trying to look trying to look good and creating the illusion that you have power over people and circumstances, or whether you're going to taste it, enjoy it, and find the tr- find out the truth about who you are. Jeff Foster said, We eventually realize that our partners, jobs, religions, achievement, possessions won't make us happy. Not permanently, anyway. This is delus- disillusionment. It manifests as anxiety, depression, midlife crisis, and it can be a wonderful thing. For contained within its sacred core is an invitation to go beyond all these comforts and pleasures that never really delivered what they promised and rediscover that which never changes, our true nature. When you realize that that nothing, that no thing, ever has the power to make you permanently happy, you receive a deeper invitation. Nothing can make you happy, and that is the reason for joy. And Michael Keeley says, Here's the Dharma. You will not know your delusions until you awaken from them.